This podcast is brought to you by Learn Prime. Hone your development skills at learn.thoughtbot.com. Giant robot smashing into other giant robots. Hello and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. I'm here today with Jeff Casimir. We're at RailsConf 2014. Uh, I'm here with my good friend Jeff, executive director of the Touring School of Software and Design. How you doing? I'm good. Juggling work and conference for a full week is pretty difficult, you know, so it's hard to uh, try and be engaged, like see all the people you want to see, check out talks you want to see, and keep the lights on and like keep, make sure people aren't, you know, wheels grinding to a halt back home. So yeah, it's a little tricky. How are you? Uh, I'm great. I'm enjoying the conference a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's my first big conference in a while, like maybe almost a year, I think so. It is amazing how many people you see uh, from all the past conferences, whether it's RailsConf or smaller conferences or whatever. I feel like uh, I, I know one out of five people that I pass in the hallway. Yeah, cool. it's cool. It's cool, like building up a group of people that you are mm-hmm. familiar with. And at the same time, it reminds me, I went to a conference recently where I knew nobody, and it's daunting. Mm-hmm. You know, when there are these huge packs of people talking about things maybe you know about, but more likely they're talking about each other's jobs and people that they know that you don't know. And mm-hmm. um, I was observing a little bit last night at one of the parties. It's tricky in that kind of environment where it's loud and you can see people floating around like they want to engage, but mm-hmm. they don't know where to tap in. Yeah. And it's, it's hard. Sometimes you can be the person that's like, hey, come talk to us. Who are you? What are you about? You know? Yep. But I'm not always ready to be that person. Yeah. I've been that person floating around being like, I know I should be talking to people. Mm. Just who? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's that generic networking feel. Like, I should be talking. Right. I should be extracting value from these humans. Exactly. Me. No. And everyone says that's what you're supposed to do at conferences. Right. Like, that must be true. Uh, it's interesting. I feel like as what I call my generation of Rails developers, which is people that started in like 2005 to 2008 or nine. Mm-hmm. um, everyone's moving up now. Like there are a lot of team leads and directors of engineering and VPs and CTOs and stuff. And now it's starting to remind me of South by Southwest. Like you come ostensibly to the conference, but actually I'm getting breakfast with this person then coffee with this person and lunch with that person and dinner with this person and uh, fit, fit a couple conference talks in there in between. I was talking to someone else and it's interesting to see how the topics change as well. Cause like rails is now 10 so it's like hitting its like adolescence, right? Mm-hmm. And so like there's a big track at the conf about like service-oriented architecture mm-hmm. and breaking up big monorails. And like we're hitting the point where like a, a lot of people have like big apps that have been around for a long time now. Yep. And so the needs are not like how do you get started? How do you do TDD? It's more like oh god, what now? And from the organizing side, that just means that it gets more complicated every year, right? Because you still have mm. plenty of people who are in their first six months of working with Ruby. And so how do you create a conference that can address all those different needs? Yep. Um, I know on the organizing side, like with the workshops, traditionally workshops have been f- more fundamental and for people that are, that are new. Um, this year I wanted to experiment with doing a few of those, but also things that are for more proficient and advanced developers. And, mm-hmm. um, this morning was a workshop on machine learning, and yesterday was a workshop on Elixir and so forth. And uh, I think it's been really successful. We've seen really high density, in, despite the workshops being kind of down the road, round the corner from the main sessions, mm-hmm. uh, almost every session has been overflowing with people, which awesome. is really cool. That's great. I heard great things about the Elixir session. Yeah, Elixir, have you ever done it? Uh, just dabbled. Jose came and gave a session at, at my school. 
three hours of working and for the first two hours I was sitting there like I'm supposed to be the one that gets this like I have the computer engineering degree I don't get it I don't get it and then all of a sudden this ray of sunshine came between the clouds it's like oh yeah I do get it this is pretty amazing we also talked to Dave Thomas at one point and he said that Elixir was one of the what was the technology he's most excited about mm. for the future mm-hmm. um, so that's Pretty serious endorsement uh, from somebody I have a tremendous respect for. So Sure. Uh, and it was one of the early people to spot Ruby and yeah. push it into the mainstream. Yeah. Some people that join the community now, I think there's kind of this sense of like, oh, everything's been built. Mm. You know, uh, mm-hmm. I wish I had been around in 2000 when I could have been an early Rubyist. Well, it seems to be the same pattern again, right? There is some developer creates a language. Dave Thomas then writes the book about it. And like, if you want to get in on the ground floor, that's, that's what it looks like. The ground floor, there aren't uh, spotlights and fireworks going off all the time. Like, right. Totally. Uh, I've been talking to a lot of people about closure because that's, that's kind of my latest obsession. And originally had been sort of bemoaning like the state of things. Like it's, mm. it's definitely a little rough around the edges for certain things. Um, the testing culture doesn't seem to be quite as strong. So a lot of the tools around testing to me are a little bit rough but someone told me, like, you know, that's just opportunity. Yeah. That's just, like, you can go in and fix the stuff, and the, the fruit is so low-hanging that you can do easy stuff yeah. and make the world better over there. I'm really curious with Clojure and Scala that I, I don't follow either one closely, and some people that I, that I think are really smart are into each. Mm-hmm. But it seems to me from the outside that, like, stall would be too harsh but I feel like growth hasn't accelerated in the way I would have thought it would um, where it was like two years ago. I feel like there in the, were in more, Ruby in particular, you mean? In just kind of what I see in like the development world, oh, like discussion for- around closure and Scala. As Scala, I think even more so than, than closure. I do see closure like popping up more and more places, mm-hmm. but Scala, it's almost like people are forgetting about kind of. So mm. I'm curious to see where those go. I feel like they've been caught by the goes and the elixirs and so forth it seems to me like there's more at least maybe it's just the people i interact with that there's more excitement and momentum around go than there is like those jvm languages Mm. those i consider those such different animals though yeah like if i'm gonna the problems i would reach for go versus closure are so different that like i don't even think of them as competing really that's fair i think about it just in terms of competing for mindshare sure yeah and like what people are interested in what they're conferencing about what they're reading and writing books about Mm -hmm. it's hard to come up with like a answer on that right it's so subjective Mm -hmm. it's like within my ruby circle like there's not a ton of closure going on it's like sort of poking in at the edges yeah but if you were at a you know functional programming conference you're like oh man this thing is dominated by this or that or whatever so it's that's that's so subject to our our own like narrow spheres i think yeah yeah i wonder where like where do closure developers come from i don't know i mean i'm coming from ruby Mm -hmm. it's a good question I think a decent amount come from Java because they're like, well, we're stuck on the JVM because we've got all this infrastructure, right. but we can use a language that's better or that we like better. I've been doing some Java work lately um, for a project, and it's surprising and disappointing to me how few things have changed since I did Java back in 2003. Mm-hmm. And even when it comes to libraries and frameworks and so forth, like things are easier than they used to be, but... It's still rough, just r- really rough. It's pretty hamstrung by a couple of weaknesses. Yeah. Where it's like tough to, I mean, supposedly they're finally getting lambdas, I guess, in the mm-hmm. next version or the current version or something. It's like, welcome to 40 years ago with Lisp or something. Yeah. Yeah. I felt like even in things like the documentation um, around some open source project that I was working with, 
It's like, this really is not acceptable. And for a project that is respected and used, mm. as best I can tell, like, it's surprisingly substandard. Mm. That's, it's so weird that that happens. Like, I, actually, it's not weird, I should say. It's, it's a shame that it happens, but, like, the documentation part is not very fun, right? Yeah. Like, the, the slinging the code part is definitely fun. And then, like, being like, all right, now I have to write up, like, really detailed docs on this. It's like, eh. I had an interesting thing with documentation recently where uh, I have a gem that I built and I was surprised to learn other people wanted to use it. Uh, it was it was kind of an experiment. And so now a lot of people use it. Um, I added four other people as uh, collaborators on the repo mm-hmm. and I am not in touch with it day to day. Like I'm, I'm, I'm that guy who like starts the project and then can't really afford to be engaged with it a mm-hmm. lot. And I went to work on the documentation because the documentation is very important to me. And started documenting features and realized, like, I don't agree with these features. Like, we've we've added pieces here that I don't, I can't make the documentation argument. Like, the here's why you want to use this because I don't believe in it. Yeah. Um, and so now I feel like I'm in a, in a little bit of a jerk position where right. I think I'm going to have to rip those features out. And so, like, uh, maybe go kind of Sinatra's model with this, you know, where there's Sinatra and Sinatra contrib. And contrib is kind of like the junk drawer of, like, things we're not sure are good ideas. Right. And I feel like that's what I'm going to have to do. I think that's the right choice to curate code and curate projects, but it feels really mean. You know, mm. like somebody put the work into this and somebody, it was important to someone's project. They think it's a good idea. And just because I don't, don't think it's a good idea, well, I happen to be in charge of this. So. There's such a theme for me, oddly, of like guilt in open source. Mm-hmm. Like you start something and then you walk away, and that's like guilt. Or you start something and there are issues, and you get through some of them, but you leave others, and like there's guilt around that. Yep. Or like responding to mailing lists or things like that. There's like so many opportunities to feel kind of bad about what you've done. We we keep creating more and more ways to like feel bad about ourselves and each other. It's, a, right. it's a weird fallout. Right. Right. I mean, it's certainly I mean, open source, net positive on the world for sure. Yeah. But like I think as maintainers, like sometimes it can lead to these. Uh, tough emotional situations. Yeah, I'm also really interested in engagement in open source. And um, I was talking the other night, I think it's really unfortunate how few people are paid to work on open source in a full time or like kind of medium term, you know, weeks or months at a time. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's, uh, there are a decent number of companies, like there's this robot company or something that, uh, you know, people have time to set aside for working on open source that's a day a week or a day every two weeks or whatever it is. But when you look at the Ruby community where everything's built on open source, right, from the operating system on up that mm-hmm. we deploy on, how many people are employed full-time working on open source? You've got the AT&T bunch with Aaron. Um, you've got Heroku, Engine Yard, and Red Hat. And I think that's about it. Hmm. And why? It, it's disappointing to me that that is acceptable to us because hmm. there are so many companies right? that, yes, they release some open source. That's nice. But if your company has 20 developers you could probably afford to have a 21st developer that works just on open source or rotate that slot three months at a time among members of the team. And why not do it? Of course, it's because uh, the perception is they need to be delivering value today. They need to be building features today, not building this open source stuff. But then we're also going to get all pissed off when you get things like Heartbleed. And it's like, yeah, there's some volunteers pushing code on New Year's Eve at 11 p.m. or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Mistakes are going to happen. We make so much money on open source, and 
at the company level invest so little back. Hmm. I think that's really disappointing. Yeah. Um, for us, for a long time, uh, we had Steve Klabnik was part of our team and spent the majority of his time working on open source uh, when it was three of us. So I look at it as like if I could afford to do that when there were three of us, companies that have like 100 people, 200 people, you should be able to do that. Mm. And yet it all kind of works anyway, you know? Like I, I agree it's a shame, and yet, but somehow it's, it's still happening. Yeah, but I feel like there's lost potential. Like, could we oh, move sure. faster? Especially the ugly work. Yeah. The uh, fixing a bug or adding a feature, you can do that in a day a week. You know? But when you look at things like the garbage collection beast that looks like it's actually get, getting slain here with Ruby 2.1, but if we had somebody with the credentials that had six months, they could have built that two years ago, three years ago, and mm. we could have all been benefiting all this time. Especially yeah. like those infrastructure things that are really hard programming, I think just get overlooked. And you know, I'm super thankful for the work that Aaron does uh, through his sponsorship or employment with AT&T. And nobody else wants to dig in on active record and mm. like clean that stuff up and make things more performant. And so instead, we just have this mad scientist who does his thing and then every once in a while like just delivers us nuggets of gold and mm -hmm. makes everyone's life easier and better. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Are there grants for working in open source? Like, will the government pay for this? Uh, you know, so I'm actually working on something at our school. If we get uh, approval from the family, I provisionally want to uh, name it after Jim Weirich uh, to do an open source education fellowship. Mm -hmm. So uh, where we raise a little bit of money and then pay people to come visit us in Denver for three months, work three days a week on open source, and then two days a week on helping students get into open source and contribute to open mm -hmm. source and so forth. And pay them enough of a stipend that it can kind of cover their cost of living, not like a, a big luxury. Um, but I'm really curious to see what happens with that. Like, will employers, if you uh, tell the ThoughtBot overlords, like, hey, I'm going to go take three months off. Mm. Uh, I know you are a ThoughtBot overlord, but just hypothetically. Uh, I'm going to take three months off and be in Denver and I'll be back, you know, and like everything's cool. Will employers object to that or will they think it's cool? Uh, will developers be into it? I did some preliminary polling and people found it interesting. So Yeah. It's interesting to imagine a world where more people get a chance to work on something for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. Like just going back to closure, like Rich Hickey took a long sabbatical mm -hmm. to crank that out. And like he was fortunate enough to be in the position where he could do that. But if we offered more of a support structure where like almost everyone could do this, like what are you going to do on your like, you know, six months off that you get every 10 years or whatever right. it is? Like, what's your project? I think the trick with sabbaticals usually is people don't come back, right? Mm -hmm. you, you've been in the grind, you've been doing the thing for so long. Uh, I think this is a challenge at Intel where they have something like a, I think it's a six month sabbatical after seven years. Mm -hmm. And then when you get out and you have, and you, you reach the, f the finish line or the checkpoint of the sabbatical and you realize like, Hey, it's kind of time to change up. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, if the company's lucky, maybe they can find a different position for you. Mm -hmm. But I, I think there's a danger there. Yeah. And that's what makes me wonder if like this, shouldn't this be like a public good that like we all pay for as part of, you know, the government taxes mm -hmm. and whatnot. Because it benefits everybody, the whole world. Promoting socialism of software. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I guess so. I don't know. It would be nice. I, I can understand why we don't. But you know, I think when you look at companies like sponsoring open source, it sounds very complicated. Like, are they employees? Do we give them health insurance? Like, how does that work? Mm. It would be interesting to me if there were an organization like Ruby Central, for instance, where companies could basically 
subscribe, you know, and just send Ruby Central a thousand dollars a month. Mm-hmm. Ruby Central aggregates the money and like kind of steers the projects, picks the people, that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you know Ruby Central itself being all volunteer run. I'm not sure if, if that's the actual right choice, but something along those lines where we can get together, like share the burden and responsibility, and also it'd be more likely for companies to actually participate. Mm. Like if they feel like they're in it with everybody else. Yeah, I like that idea a lot, actually. Just make a foundation and I'll donate it to it. Yeah? yeah. You up for a thousand a month? No. No. <laughs> no. Okay. So how's the school going? Uh, school's going all right. This is our third teaching program that we're running. So it's called the Turing School of Software and Design. There are some big changes and we're trying to figure out how to like scale and increase quality, not decrease, mm-hmm. uh, not dilute what we're doing. Mm-hmm. I think there's some really great potential for having a lot of people in the same space doing the same thing. And so the, the big change for us with this program is layering classes. So we start one group of students in June, one group in July, one group in September, and one group in October. Mm-hmm. And so once we're up at full speed in October, we'll have 100 students in the building uh, at four different experience levels, groups of about 25 each. Mm-hmm. And so I'm excited to see what that potential looks like for collaboration. You know, it's a lot more like a workplace. When you're in a training program where everyone's got the same experience as you, that's not a good mirror of the workplace. But you get in and people, you know, even if if I'm on day one and you're on week seven, the percentage of your experience is very large. But as as it grows up, like somebody who is in week seven versus week 14 versus week 21, the delta in that is actually quite large. And so somebody at week 21 can be a very valuable mentoring resource to those people behind them. Yeah, I like that a lot. And I, I learn a ton when I teach things to newer people. And so it's like, that's it, it's not just like charity work where like now you have to go tutor the, right. the newer people. Right. It helps solidify those concepts and also expose holes in your own knowledge. Yep. Because you're like, no, you should always do this. And someone's like, well, why? And you're like, well, because Jeff said so. Right. right. I don't really know why. One of the most experimental pieces is I think we're going to stop answering questions as a teaching staff uh-huh. like in, in you know you have a full group lecture of course so yeah whatever there's questions during that but in terms of when students are working on projects that we traditionally have they're kind of in, an, in a work area and there's at least one of us sitting down there and just walk over bring over your laptop and ask questions but there's so little value to that actually like if we fix your syntax error we were already good at fixing syntax errors. Mm-hmm. Um, we can maybe walk you through of like, what about line 50? Mm-hmm. You know, how does that work? But it's pretty low value. And for the staff, we end up answering all these tiny questions and feel that the students aren't any better off. Like they've made progress in the code, but their learning isn't any stronger. Mm-hmm. Whereas somebody who doesn't have as much experience debugging as we do, mm. like their peers or somebody who's seven weeks in front of them or whatever, it right. is actually a valuable exercise. That's a good point. And so what we're going to experiment with is not having that person sitting there, uh, but instead you can sign up to pair with them. So you can grab half an hour to pair, but you have like a one-minute syntax error, sorry, you yeah. got to figure it out. Or rely on your peers or whatever it is. Mm. You got to iron out those small questions yourself because the pairing is where we feel like we see the real support value. You know, you can give deep feedback on the quality of their code and their approach to solving problems and you can see them grow and like they can understand our approach to solving problems. Just coming over for like a two minute question, uh, bundle this or fix this missing end or sure. whatever, not high value. 
Yeah. A human stack overflow is not a yeah exactly. not what you want to be. Exactly. It's also not very fun for the instructors. It's terrible. It's really draining yeah. because uh, you you always have this illusion of like I'm going to get some things done while I'm answering questions, and you're just constant context switching, yeah. and you get nothing done. Yeah, I believe it. Is the school going to be in Denver? In Denver, yeah. We're also trying an admissions model that might be a terrible idea, which is uh, you get admitted. And it's not based on classes. So it's not like there's no waiting list or anything because there's no point in time where it's like, oh, we want to take people who we think are have a moderate chance of being successful. Basically, we decide if we think you're going to be successful or not. And if we do and make that invite, then you're welcome to sign up for the next class or the class after that or a class a year from now hmm. or whatever it is. Like you're the type of person that we're looking for. And that doesn't matter whether you want to start in a month or in a year. Interesting. Um, now, there are some psychological flaws there, yeah. like having no deadline. People keep asking right. me, like, when's the deadline for the June class? Like, uh, when it starts, I guess. If they're, if it's not full, then right. we're not going to take anybody else. But yep. the deadline is whenever it fills up. Um, so hopefully that'll be soon. But uh, still working on, on lots of positions for June and July right now. Hmm. Interesting. So the first class will graduate. The class that starts in June will graduate in December. And then the second class graduated in January, and then the third, I think, into March, and so forth. And so we'll be cranking out about 25 people every seven weeks. Uh, and that's going to be really, really interesting to see what happens. Like, mm-hmm. what does the job market look like? We're working on some more sustained partnerships now with companies that are constantly hiring. Are they interested in picking up two students per class? every class or every other class. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we get more of them into, let's just say, Apprentice I.O.? Mm-hmm. Or uh, how do we like find these sustained relationships so it's not always starting from scratch? If we have to start from scratch finding 25 jobs every class, it's not going to go well. <laughs> it's too much work. Isn't that like naturally sort of delegated or divided among the students because it's their own responsibility? Yeah, it is, and they do a ton, but... Really, it's one of the pieces that I think we and I particularly am really valuable uh, for them Mm. where they can job hunt on their own. And I would say about a third of our students end up at jobs that they found on their own. They reached out to them on their own and they did everything on their own. Mm -hmm. But the other two thirds, it's more of like, hey, I'm interested in this company. It's like, oh. I know so-and-so who's the VP of engineering or whatever it is. You know, as there are more and more programs trying to kind of do what we're doing, those connections become more and more important because uh, we, we are starting to see employers that say things to me like, oh, we don't interview people from these kinds of programs. And that's, in my mind, I always say challenge accepted. Mm-hmm. Like, thank you, sir. I understand. Just to entertain me, would you consider interviewing this one? You know? yeah. And usually the answer is no. So then you go through the de- list of developers and find somebody that I know from a conference or whatever and just say, like, just inter- just an hour on Hangout. Like, hang out with this person for an hour. And then, long story short, they usually get hired. And yeah. then it's like, okay, we don't have to have this conversation again. Hmm. You know? Interesting. I wonder if that perception will, how that will change over time. I think, uh, you know, for us individually, it's tricky because we keep having new names. Yeah, uh, I was once, ask once, you about that. Once we stabilize. <laughs> uh, we call it something different, like every class uh, you run, it seems yeah, like. Yeah, yes. Uh, business is hard. Uh, I've learned a lot. Being a developer does not prepare you for running well, a business. And it, I mean, they say that naming things is pretty hard. And uh, you're finding that's true. Yeah, yeah. As a friend said to me the other day, it's kind of like you got your MBA. I'm like, yeah. It was very painful and very expensive. So, uh, you know, I think as developers, 
I'm accustomed to being with people that think more or less like I do, that share a lot of my same values. Mm -hmm. And when you go into the business world, that's not the case anymore. Mm -hmm. And I I think I kind of had my guard down, um, got involved with some things that just were not the right fit for me and for the company and like not we didn't align on vision Hmm. right and this work that we do like we pour our hearts into it and it's not worth pouring my heart into something if i don't believe it 100 percent. so that's why i'm excited with turing we have no obligations we have no one else that we have to answer to or compromise with like all we have to do is exactly what we think is the right thing to do Mm. so this is the one yeah 10 years from now our goal my goal is to create mit that's what I always ask myself is like, what would MIT do? Uh, how do we become the MIT of developer training? And mm. how do we create a thing that's going to last for you know, 20, 50, 100 years? Mm. Under the same name. Under the same name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're sticking with this one. Okay, cool. What else do you want to talk about? Let's see. I've been reading about GitHub issues today. Okay. That's like a, that's a field of landmines. I find it fascinating, just the whole whole dialogue but yeah that's probably like too dangerous to discuss <laughs> i also feel we don't know enough right there's like it's yeah. all like conjecture it seems like yeah and there's i think it's really interesting with those issues where the details of what happened when with whom don't really matter hmm. right it's what's more important is the is the outcomes of action so if somebody said something and they didn't mean it to be a certain way, but that person took it a certain way. It doesn't matter what you meant it to be. Right. You, you got the outcome. Uh, you got this negative outcome. Yep. Uh, it seems to be a situation where people are really hurt and mm. like very raw. Mm. And I feel sad, disappointed for everyone involved. Like uh, and understanding that some of them created the situation uh, and and some of them were victims of the situation but it's just so sad because I look at it and it's like no no happiness is coming from this like only people people are only going to get pissed off and fired and da 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 and I I guess the silver lining you hope for is that maybe this incident or this conversation leads to it not happening to someone else in the future Mm. but I don't know That, that seems like a more of a hope than a likelihood. Mm. You digging uh, Denver still? Yeah, we like Denver. It's interesting to be, well, it's the first question I get if I talk to business people outside of Denver and tell them about our program. And they're like, in Denver? Why Denver? There was this lady I met with at Andreessen Horowitz and it was the disgust when she said, Denver? I was like, I don't know, middle of the ocean. Like, you hillbilly. Uh, yeah, exactly. And it's been really nice. One of the pieces I didn't think about too much ahead of time, but has been really valuable for us, is how easy it is to be a big deal in a smaller place. And so for us in Denver, like Denver itself is a you know relatively large metro city, but um, as a tech city, it's really, I, I call it like a tier three trying to be a tier two city. And because of that, at the municipal level and at kind of the organizational level, industry level, people are very interested in new ideas. Mm. Um, if I was in San Francisco and I was doing what we do and I wanted to meet with the mayor, they would say, like, who are you? Mm. Like, no, you're not meeting with anybody. Uh, in 
Denver, I emailed our congresswoman's office and then met with her team like three days later. And they're helping us, you know, connect with people and organizations around the city and around the state. Um, I've had like had lunch with people from the mayor's office and um, people from state level initiatives and all that. And Mm -hmm. they're just normal people. Like people are very accessible. And that's been really cool because I I was honestly afraid. We've only been in Denver a year and, um, you know, not affiliated anymore with the business partners that brought us there. So what was the water going to be like when we're when we're out on our own? Was it going to be kind of poisoned where people not going to want to talk to us? Mm. Um, And we found exactly the opposite where people have been super welcoming. Um, We decided when we wrapped up G School, we thought for a while about relocating. Um, and we decided to stay in Denver primarily because of the cost of living for students, that that's one of the factors we can't control mm-hmm. in our program. Like mm-hmm. we can keep lowering tuition, but the reality is the, the tuition that students pay up front now is probably lower than their cost of living during the program. Yeah. And so if we went to San Francisco, if we went to New York, uh, although I love those places, the cost of living would double or triple. Mm-hmm. And that is too limiting on what students, who, like what kinds of students, what profile student can apply and, and participate in the program. Um, Denver is a really nice compromise for us where there is a tech community. There's, you know, the kind of, I, I loop Denver and Boulder together. That's offensive yeah. to people in Boulder. But um, the Denver, but Boulder, Denver. <laughs> Denver's like, yeah, we'll take it. Yeah. And Boulder's like, yeah, oh, we're, we're in the mountains. We're in Patagonia. Like, we don't talk to you people. Uh, and, in the Denver Boulder community, there are a lot of jobs. There are a lot of good people doing really interesting work. I'm really curious to see, in the based on our past classes, about half of students stick around in Colorado and get jobs in Colorado. Mm-hmm. Um, if that stat were to remain true, which I don't think it will, but if it were to remain true, that would mean that just in the year 2015, we'd be injecting like 7,500 developers into what is a relatively small community. So yeah. uh, what kind of positive change does that create? What does it look like if you know students start to hopefully go work for somebody for a year or two and then maybe they start companies and they're more likely to hire mm. our students and so forth because they understand what they can do and can we create like a virtuous cycle to it? I'm, mm-hmm. I'm really curious. To see. Yeah, that alumni network I think can be a, could be a big deal. Yeah, it's been super valuable. I get a lot of support um, from our alumni where... They'll write me these like great emails out of the blue about the change in their in their life uh, going through our program, and that's super meaningful for me. Like, it's hard work that we do, and I'm so deeply invested in it. Like, all my time, all my money, like everything for the past five years has gone into this work. Then we ship them off into the world, you know, and we entrust them to you and uh, th- three people over at Thoughtbot and so forth. Mm-hmm. And it's, I feel like the the mother bird, you know, like go fly little birdies. And mm-hmm. it's so validating to see them succeed and, you know, be at RailsConf and see, like there's something like 14 alumni here and three of them gave talks awesome. and others are like helping support at the workshops and um, they stay super engaged with us. They're always banging down my door to participate in mentoring and, that's been really cool. Like I, I think one of the ideas we started out with, and, and Chad Fowler and I really like cooked up the Hungry Academy idea, was starting with good people. Could we turn them into good developers? You mm. know, and I, I think we've seen that they really are good people. And so having more good people in a community that I care about feels like we're really doing the right thing. Mm. So you feel fulfilled? <laughs> That's tricky. 
I feel like it's still so unstable. My goal is to get Turing to the point where it doesn't need me anymore. Mm. And so how soon can we get there? That's when I'll feel like I made a thing. Mm. Right now, it still feels like it's a hype bubble, and I have to kind of uh, just like keep putting air into it. You know, it's like everything's great, everything's cool, don't worry. And really, under the hood, I'm like, oh my god, where are we going to get students? How like are students going to pay us back on time? What's the credit card processor? What fee did I account for that in the spreadsheet? You know, there's just like all these from tiny worries to huge worries. And so I'm trying, I'm I'm trying to learn to run a business not be the business mm-hmm. uh, and, and the e-myth thing yeah exactly yeah. Uh, which I, I joke about that book as being like one of the best worst books you can read if you're you if yeah uh, one of the the book we're talking about is the e-myth revisited it was originally written about franchising like particularly hotels and restaurants and things like that yeah. and got tweaked to be more general about creating businesses that are sustainable. Uh, One of my favorite parts about it, I'm kind of a stickler for typography. And in the book, you can tell where they actually uh, like whited out pages of the manuscript. Like the font changes subtly in some of the paragraphs where it like used to be about creating franchises and now it's about creating sustainable businesses. It's amazing. If we grab a paper copy of the book, I could find you some of the paragraphs. Uh, It's a great book. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. One of the powerful ideas I got from it was to write an organization chart of all the jobs that are done in your company from marketing to customer support da, 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 and fill yourself into all the boxes and then as soon as you can put someone else's name in the box and take yours out and that was a really meaningful way for me to think about responsibilities in the company yeah huh have you taken yourself out of any of the boxes yet yes okay. uh, a little bit yeah I probably cohabitate a lot of boxes uh, yeah and that's, you know, when you come to a thing like RailsConf, you realize how much you're failing at those things where people are waiting on me and people mm-hmm. are like, things are not necessarily getting done or they're not done like the way I wanted them done because I didn't give clear enough instructions ahead of time or I didn't give enough feedback or I didn't empower people well enough to like make the decisions on their own. So I think that that's been the struggle for me in like growing a business from one person to now six and soon to be like 10 or 12 people is... Mm-hmm. How do I really convince people that I trust them? And the answer to the question is do what you think is the right thing to do. Like mm-hmm. if you were me, what would you do? Mm-hmm. And I'm, I think I'm, I'm slowly convincing them of that. And uh, yourself probably. And myself. It is very rare that somebody makes a decision I disagree with. You know, there might be some things where I'm like, ah, I wouldn't have done it quite that way, but I'm thankful for it to be done mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, maybe share some feedback along the way. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's been great. It's been interesting, you know, where our core business is helping people grow their technical skills uh, as the business, like helping people grow their business skills and like how do we run this and how do we do marketing and how do we do recruitment and what's important here and so forth. Cool. It's been a good adventure. Awesome. Well, it's good talking to you as always. Yeah. I like having you on and it's good seeing you at RailsConf. Thanks. You too. Cool. So if you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to thoughtbot.com slash giantrobots slash 96. Thanks for listening.